Hello, and welcome to episode 129 of the Northern Miner podcast. I'm your host, John Cumming, the editor-in-chief of the Northern Miner. This episode, we have the Clean Mining Panel from our Progressive Mine Forum that was held at the Mars Discovery District in Toronto back in mid-October. Uh, on this panel, we have Richard Clarissa, our staff writer here at the Northern Miner, as the moderator. The panel is made up of six members. Here we have Carl Wetherell, Executive Director and CEO of the Canadian Mining Innovation Council, Nathan Stubina. At the time, he was the Managing Director of Innovation at McEwen Mining, but he's uh, since moved on to Share International, he's, where he's Vice President of Technology. We have Jason Goodhand, Vice President of Business Development at eZinc Inc., Corey McPhee, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs, Communications, and Sustainability at Valet Canada. Raziel Zisman, co-founder and partner of the Sustainable Governance Initiative at Whittle Consulting. And we have John Mullally. He's the Vice President of Corporate Affairs at Gold Corp. This podcast is brought to you by the Yukon Mining Alliance. Check out their website at yukonminingalliance.ca. And you can also follow them on Twitter at investyukon. A little bit of news out of the Yukon in the last few weeks here. Just a couple of days ago, we had Victoria Gold closing a flow-through financing of $1.7 million. They're going to use the proceeds to explore and develop their Dublin Gulch property in the Yukon. And some bad news for attack resources. This was back in uh, December on December 12th. Barrett Gold terminated its option agreement to acquire an interest in their Orion project, which is part of a tax 100% owned Rakla Gold property. So Attack still has $10 million in its treasury, and they'll uh, continue on this summer without Barrett. You know, we're just reaching the year end here, so I took a bit of a look at the stats for the podcast. It's pretty interesting. Uh, the top cities uh, where we have our listeners, Toronto, Vancouver, and the San Francisco, San Jose area. The top Canadian cities are kind of follow the population. Toronto, Vancouver, Montreal, Winnipeg, Calgary, Edmonton, Saskatoon, Sudbury, Thunder Bay, and Ottawa. The top U.S. cities are San Jose and San Francisco, L.A., Long Beach area, New York, Denver, and Littleton, Dallas, Salt Lake City, Chicago, Seattle, Washington, D.C. area, and Reno. And top cities outside of Canada and the U.S. are London, Helsinki, Perth, Brisbane, Stockholm, Melbourne, Santiago, Chile, Dubai, Moscow, and Mexico City. And just looking at the top countries where we have listeners, top 10, Canada, U.S., U.K., Australia, Sweden, Germany, Finland, Brazil, Mexico, and Indonesia. And then rounding out the top 20, you've got Japan, Netherlands, France, Russia, Chile, Turkey, UAE, South Africa, India, and Ireland. So, uh, yeah, quite a global presence here for the podcast our most listened to podcast for the whole year was the Ross Beatty one, as well as uh, number two is the Serbia one with uh, Dan James and the one about interviewing um, Pierre Lassant. Before we go forward, we have a sponsored segment here. This is what we call a Mining Minute. It is the third part of a segment with Anthony Milewski. He's the chairman and CEO of Cobalt 27 Capital. And in this one, he talks about the exposure of cobalt-27 to nickel and cobalt. Now, 
naturally, I would say nickel is very important to to cobalt. If you look outside of the Congo, nickel and cobalt are co-products in basically almost every case, at least on a, on a large scale. If you look in Australia at the mines being developed, like Cleantex mine there, you know, it's a nickel cobalt mine. If you look at Dumont, that's a nickel cobalt mine. If you look at Boise's Bay, that's a nickel cobalt mine. If you look at, you know, even Turnigan, once again, you have nickel and cobalt. If you look at Norilsk, you have nickel and cobalt. If you look in Brazil, you have nickel and cobalt. And so we really need to be very flexible when we are dealing with producers and developers in terms of the financial solution that we're offering them in the form of a stream. And so ultimately for us, it's very natural that we're going to have exposure to nickel and cobalt. I mean, just look at our royalties. They're exposed to all products, which means probably inherently more of the revenue from the royalties will ultimately be nickel. If you look at you know, the Ramu stream, what you see there is that we needed to do something on the nickel and the cobalt. And so while cobalt is you know, still probably the majority of our NAV, uh, you definitely see that we have to kind of have that nickel exposure in order to do these deals globally. We're very committed, and we've told our shareholders time and time again that we're not going to invest in the Congo. Yes. And in the Congo, you have copper and nickel coincident. And so you know, that's why uh, you don't necessarily see me talking about copper, which is also a fantastic battery metal. We have one more sponsored segment here. This is what we call our sponsor spotlight, and it has to do with the sponsors of our Progressive Mind Forum. In this case, Major Drilling was one of our major sponsors, and we have speaking here uh, Mark Landry. He's the vice president at Major Drilling, responsible for technology and supply chain, plus Ian Wilson. He's an innovation manager at Major Drilling. Hi, I'm Mark Landry. I'm the vice president at Major Drilling, responsible for technology and supply chain. So Major Drilling uh, is one of the largest drilling companies globally, right? We're the most innovative, uh, full-service drilling company uh, uh, offering greenfield exploration, brownfield uh, mining services, everything uh, over and above that. We have uh, over 600 drills in more than 15 countries offering all those services. And uh, we have a management team that backs up these, uh, these operations with over 1,000 years' experience. And that's all also due to our more than 2,500 employees, if you want, around the world, uh, which are the best in the industry. For us, innovation is part of our strategy, right? And we do it for two reasons, first of all. I think it's important to note that, first, it's for uh, our clients and their projects. We do different initiatives and, and build solutions with them uh, to drive results, right, to get projects done on time uh, and on budget, but also for any complex projects that have not been done before. But also we do it for our employees, right? So uh, it's all about gearing up for the future, for the millennials, for, for the younger workforce that expect and need technology at the drill sites and to have a safer work environment. Hi, I'm Ian Wilson, Innovation Manager with Major Drilling. 2018 has been a pretty exciting year as far as innovation. Uh, we've started a number of different initiatives. This year, digitizing our rigs has led itself out to be one of the most influential changes in our business. We're able to now leverage a lot of data and information from our rigs, giving us insight on the ability to optimize and streamline and build a more efficient process moving forward. I think it's something uh, through the Internet of Things and IoT, obviously, that as things change, uh, we'll be able to make further advancements leveraging that information. 
rod handling. Uh, it's uh, ever-changing industry. Uh, we're, we're trying to get our employees uh, away from hands-on uh, labor-intensive work. Uh, the workforce, uh, they're not necessarily accepting uh, the physical demands that they, they used to. So uh, working, trying to get their hands off the equipment and, and allowing them to, to use some of the uh, technology and equipment to be able to extract core and add rods to the rigs has uh, made their day-to-day a little less stren- strenuous. Um, underground rigs, we've positioned ourselves to uh, try to take a bigger bite out of an underground market. Our rigs uh, that are, were set up to, under, to work underground, they're uh, completely digitized. They, the, they, have, they do have the ability to drill unmanned through shift change, which, which gives the client a lot of opportunity to uh, get that extra production while, while the guys are out of the mine itself. Uh, working, working to build a more efficient major drilling for our clients uh, and our employees to make sure that they can be comfortable knowing that they're getting a, a quality product from us, that we're, we are putting everything that we got into their projects and giving them our, our all. Most of our innovation is focused on providing that quality of work that we've been known for and uh, having that evolve as we go forward. Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, follow uh, Ian and myself and, and Major Drilling on www.majordrilling.com and also on Twitter at Major Drilling. Let's get on with the main part of the episode here. This is this clean mining panel from the Progressive Mine Forum that we held at the Mars Discovery District back in October. The panel is moderated by Richard Quarisa, and he will introduce the panel. Welcome to the first panel of the day. This is the clean mining panel. Before we get going, I think we should do a little introductions. Sitting to my immediate left, we have Corey McPhee, the Vice President of Corporate Affairs and communications and sustainability with Vail. Uh, next to him, we have Carl Weatherill, the executive director and CEO of the Canada Mining and Innovation Council. Further on down, we have Nathan Stabina, uh, who is the managing director of innovation with McEwen Mining. Next to him, we have Jason Goodhand, VP of business development at Ezink. And last, but certainly not least, we have Raziel Zisman, the co-founder and partner of sustainable governance with Will Consulting. Before we get things going, I think it might be useful to kind of define what we mean by clean mining. I'll start with you, Corey, and maybe just kind of go down. Um, what does clean mining mean to you? Uh, clean mining for me is actually about um, just being better. Um, you know, we have a, I work for a company that has a 100-year-plus legacy, and so we have to accept responsibility and act responsibly, and it's about securing our social license to operate today, but also into the future. And so there are ways that we can do things better, and I think we have to, as an industry, challenge ourselves to do things better. I don't separate clean mining from an environmental sense with all the other things that are required for us to have success into the future. I look at uh, productivity, efficiency, safety, 
All of these things are part of what's required for us to challenge ourselves to do better on a, a continuous basis. And I think that clean mining, if you look at it purely in the environmental lens, we can reduce our emissions tomorrow to zero by shutting down the operation. That's not the intent of this. We, we really want to be sustainable, and, and, and sustainability covers so much more than just the natural environment. So that's the lens through which we look at it. Carl, would you like to build on that? Yeah, and i also like to build on something that George had said and actually the form last year, and that is the relationship to humanity. We talk a lot about, and especially last year it came up, the first question of the panel was, why does everybody hate us? Jay and um, George talks about humanity and the fit with humanity. And what we do is we, we tend to, mining tends to talk to mining, with mining, for mining, about mining. So we have to look at this clean question from humanity's perspective, not ours. So the first thing I would do is redefine it from clean mining to clean resources. Because if you talk to people outside our industry, you say mining, they think of just the extraction side, whether you're underground or in the surface. So it's clean resources, and that also expands. It makes sure that we're not alone. It's not just about the mining industry. It's about resources in general, and it connects us to the rest of the economy in Canada. So that's number one, redefine it to clean resources. Number two is if you take a look at the top three of the top issues in uh, humanity today, facing uh, the globe today, it happens to relate to water. Water security, water cleanliness, water availability, et cetera. Energy, energy efficiency, sustainability, access, security as well. And our impact on the environment, so footprint. So three of the top issues facing humanity today are energy, water, environmental footprint. So can mining and can resources, clean resources, connect to those three things? And the answer is actually really simple. Corey's already talked about some of that. Key issues in, in mining today are energy whether it's energy, energy efficiency, energy availability, energy platforms. Uh, same thing with water, water is a big issue, and so, uh, so is our impact in the environment. We produce tailings, we produce waste rock. Our impact is getting bigger, it's not getting smaller, or it tends to get bigger, not smaller. So the question then becomes, you know, there's actually a relationship between mining and water, energy, environmental footprint as integrators from exploration all the way through to environmental footprint, to uh, environmental management. But what do we need to do, or what's the focus, and what do we need to do with respect to the, the clean resource question? If you take a look at municipalities, for example, or even the Apple statement, no more mining, zero, right? Municipalities are focused on zero waste, right? So why can we not look at, in the mining industry, we waste a lot of energy. 35 to 50% of the energy that goes into a mine site is lost as low-grade waste heat. What if we got rid of that? Zero energy waste. We throw a lot of stuff out in the environment, whether it's tailings or whether it's waste rock zero environmental footprint, and the third thing is water. What if we did not discharge water at sometimes levels greater than the naturally occurring environment because of regulations? So to us, and I say us, not me, to us the answer is clean resources is about uh, towards a zero waste industry, focused on energy, water, environmental footprint. Absolutely, and I'm glad you took it there because that's quite a lot to unpack. But before we get to that, let's move on to Nathan. I'll define it by what it's not. Whatever we're doing now is what I would consider not clean mining. If you have a strip ratio of six to one like we do in Mexico, you're moving six million grams of waste to get one gram per ton. So you're moving seven million tons of material to get one gram of gold and you recover 60% of that, which makes sense to no one except maybe the people in this room here. If you're putting it in into a truck that's 30% efficient burning diesel, and the weight of the truck is twice the weight of the ore, and you're going around and around the pit because you're stuck with a 5% slope design, and you're feeding that into a ball mill that's 5% efficient, and if Carl just mentioned energy, imagine that, you're feeding a ball mill that's 5% efficient, 
energy is not free, we're complaining there's no energy, we're not on the grid, and yet we're flying diesel up to the high Arctic. Again, that makes no sense to anyone except maybe people in this room. And then you take that and you put it into a tailings dam. Over the last 30 years, 60 tailings dams that I know of have, have given way. So every six months you're gonna see in the news some tailings dam. So from the water, the energy, the waste that we were doing, I would not consider any of that clean or efficient or sane. Mm -hmm. Now, Jason, you come from a bit of a different background than some of these guys, so I'm sure you'll have a pretty unique take on this question. I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Yeah, I'm certainly not an expert on uh, mining. Uh, I'm from the energy sector. And uh, when I thought about clean, I obviously thought about uh, environmental emissions, but you know, defining that problem, a lot of, of, when you think of clean, it's what are you leaving behind? What kind of mess are you making? And, and the, the topic of energy, this industry is powered on diesel and, and fossil fuels, and what you're leaving behind is a lot of carbon dioxide, which uh, we can see is, is changing our climate. So one of the things I think we need to look at is how do we use less electricity, and how do we use more clean technologies? You don't have to use fossil fuels to create electricity. We see that renewable resources like solar and wind uh, are available at reasonable cost today and don't create emissions, uh, but there are going to be technologies like microgrids and, and energy storage that are going to allow that to, uh, to try and fully displace some of those uh, emissions. Definitely. Razul, moving on to you. Yeah, I'd like to turn it around. Let me ask, can we become a world leader in clean technologies? Question number one. Number two, who has imposed that question on us? Are we a clean industry? Is it because we're worried about social license, because we're ashamed of what we do? And let me tell a historical anecdote, because I love the two presentations earlier this morning and the two important comments that were made. Uh, George uh, Hemingway put that slide of uh, the year 1500, 1750, and the year 2000. Let's push, uh, push ourselves 250 years ahead. And let me tell you the anecdote about mining and uh, the Industrial Revolution. The primary driver for the steam engine was the coal industry, which desperately needed to dewater mines, and there was no way of doing it with horses moving around a, a pump. James Watt, uh, using technology generated during the Napoleonic Wars to bore cannons, created his engine. And that industry revolutionized the world because that brought forward the railroad and so on. Can we be a driver towards making this world a better world, a cleaner world? And what Anthony Vaccaro mentioned, data that I wasn't aware of, we spend more on R&D than other industries. So let's look at it that way and maybe direct our answers to that. We should and ought to be leaders, and that'll take care of other worries we have about how other people perceive us or define us. There's no question we do things wrong, but also people who do not know the industry, they don't understand how hard we drive or we try to uh, get things done better. I think there's a lot of wisdom in there. Now, we have a latecomer to the party, John Mullaly, the VP of Corporate Affairs at Goldcorp. Uh, same question posed to you. I think uh, just from Goldcorp's perspective, what I would say is that as Nathan says, I think we know that we're not currently sort of adopting or necessarily executing on a clean mining vision. And so I think, and, and we sort of are also, we have a consensus here as well in terms of where those showstoppers, to use George's uh, term, to where those exactly are. So maybe, I mean, just in terms of Goldcorp's perspective, kinds of things that we're doing to tackle that and to accelerate one thing that I would say is that we're conscious of commercializing clean technologies when they're available so, and or supporting their commercialization. So I think that's critical is that there's lots of things that are out there that are not necessarily being adopted. 
and though I think adoption still takes some risk taking, so that's Goldcorp's focus. The other thing is accelerating innovation, and you would have heard about our Disrupt Mining event uh, at PDAC, along the uh, margins of PDAC, which is really focused on giving entrepreneurs an opportunity, um, SMEs, to uh, integrate and work around big mining companies, and this is often something that hasn't happened in the past. So it's about hearing new ideas, those very disruptive ones, the ones that will address the showstoppers like water use, fresh water consumption, energy and climate, uh, productivity, and all those other major challenges. The other big part is, is doing this in, uh, in partnership. So I think what I would say about disrupt uh, mining is that it's really become a form. And even beyond that, it's become an, an incubator. So it's about bringing all the actors together. Goldcorp doesn't see that we have ownership over this event because there are lots of other companies that have also been interested in some of the participants and some of the winners. So that's just a little bit about our perspective on clean mining. Definitely, definitely. Now, I think it's worth taking a bit of a temperature check on mining as a whole in terms of how we're doing, right? If you were to ask the average 25-year-old how it's doing in terms of clean mining, they might not be the most informed, but they probably wouldn't have very nice things to say. So let's ask the experts, um, how do you guys think we're doing? Raziel, I think I'll start with you. I have a 16-year-old son whom I quiz about mining what he knows. Mostly he doesn't care. It's, it's irrelevant. We should care very much about that, what that generation thinks of us because they'll be our bosses a few years down the road. I run a mining company that has operations in Colombia where I see firsthand the impact of mining, well done and poorly done. And uh, there's a huge dichotomy. First of all, most people just don't know what large mining companies do in, in detail. They don't understand the science behind mining. But as uh, pointed out by the panel, we commit enormous errors regularly that uh, grab, the, grab attention around the world. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but uh, certainly the answer is not for us to act defensively. We need to proactively say, mention the challenges we have, and uh, let people know what we are how we're trying to solve it. There's no simple solution, because as one phrase I use, everybody, people love to hate us, mm -hmm. but everybody loves to use, uh, nobody flies on wooden aircraft. And even if they flew on wooden aircraft, what would you cut the wood with? So uh, as I travel, I'm asked the question all the time, and I, I defend the industry. Originally, I trained as a development economist, and what I love about my industry we transform regions. We go to remote areas, and we, uh, once a project is well done, that area is never the same again. There are schools, there are hospitals, there are roads, there is infrastructure. And uh, this is the, the, it's been the history of mining. So to sum up, we need to be clear and consistent about our goals and uh, deal with issues. The IFC, for example, will no longer finance uh, wet tailing, uh, projects with wet tailings because if no tailings done, there's no tailings done that will face. And it's the same conundrum in Colombia, there's a big debate about open pit mining. No, no large open pit mining in Colombia will be easily permitted, and who knows when the next one will come up. So we're gonna go underground, and we are finding as we go around the world that it's much easier, it's more expensive perhaps, but there's no other way of doing it. Mm -hmm. Cora, I wanna bring that same question to you. How are we doing? And are we maybe not getting enough credit for the things that we are doing well versus the things that we don't do so well? I think we have to move faster. I think we have to be more agile. I think that um, we are making some progress, and if we don't get credit for that progress, a lot of times it's because as an industry, we're not fond of talking about ourselves. We prefer to stay below the radar. 
but I was having a conversation prior to the, uh, the event getting started today, and more than 30 years ago, to much fanfare, we developed the first all-electric mine in North America in Sudbury. And that was heralding the start of a new future. And now we're still, 30 years later, heralding that same start to a new future. We had Jean Crecce in the Garson Arena uh, 20 years ago, teleoperating a scoop miles away underground. And yet, you know, that, that traction uh, never took. And, and so, you know, we find ourselves on that precipice again. So I think we need to be more agile. We've heard some talk about tailings dams. We have an operation in uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site in New Caledonia where we're piloting dry stacking of, of uh, our tailings there because it's, it's a new application of a technology that's been used before but never for this type of ore. But it's the only way that we'll be able to continue to operate there. And I think that that sense of urgency wanes with the price of the commodity that we're involved in and, and we can't allow it to. You know, there was uh, something that went across the screen about you know, uh, costs, and really, we're price takers. We don't pass the costs on to uh, consumers. So it's really about making sure that we put this way of operating into our business model. When we're planning new projects, we should be looking at, um, you know, are we using the uh, best available technology to deliver the best environmental performance, to deliver the safest output, and to deliver the best productivity? I think that it, it's all tied together. And so are we doing some good things? Yeah, we are. We um, we just recently, a couple of weeks ago, marked the completion of a $1 billion investment in Sudbury that is reducing emissions to 1% of what they were when the Superstack was built back in 1972, to the point that we no longer need the Superstack. It's just too expensive to operate. And so that's really phenomenal to think of, that we would have to operate at current emissions for 100 years to get back to the level of emissions we had in a single year back in 1972. So we're making huge progress. I just don't think that it's, it's fast enough, and I think we need to keep that sort of uh, in the back of our minds and challenge ourselves to move more quickly. And in terms of things not being fast enough, what are some things that are slowing us down, do you think? Well, you know, you heard George talk about some of the complacency that can set in when there's no burning platform, where there's nobody pushing metal away. And I, I believe that there are a number of burning platforms out there, resource nationalism, the, the, you know, there's uh, pushes for, for substitution, things of these sorts. And if we want to secure that long-term future, I think it's all about changing our mindset. And it's not about the price always going higher, because during the last super cycle, when the nickel price went to $50,000 a ton, that led to the introduction of nickel pig iron, which uh, really damaged our industry. So it's, it's about making sure that we're competitive in the current market environment that exists. Mm -hmm. I want to bring the same question to Carl, because I can tell that you're just dying to say something over there, uh, before I get to Nathan and John eventually, and Jason as well. So again, you have to ask the question, and you started off about asking outside versus inside. If you look outside the industry, again, Apple's 2016 environmental sustainability report said no more mining. So outside, if you talk to a 25-year-old in the street, they say, really, you still do that? Like, why? So outside, the image of mining in general and what we're doing in general, probably we suck, right? If you go inside, I would lean on what Corey said. There's some cool things going on. We just don't promote it. You know, we're moving, even though it was done 30 years ago, battery electric vehicles, a lot of work going on. We've got, you know, Gold Corp's, uh, you know, 20% reduction in water towards their water. There's a lot of interesting things going on, but it's not enough and it's not fast enough like severely not fast enough, and there's a couple of comments based on that. Again, if Apple is saying no more mining, what would happen, just think about what would happen if the automotive industry said, we will no longer source materials from a mine 
that can be traced, that can be traced back to mine, that produces tailing. Like that sort of, you've, you've talked about not funding, if not funding a mining project, if it's wet tailings, what if an entire industry would not buy products if there were tailings, period? That sort of thinking is, is actually going on right now. Those conversations are going on. So in leaning on what Corey said and a little bit of what George has said as well, is about a paradigm shift. Like we have to take a look at mining in, in differently. We, we tend to assume the same common paradigms. We shall, thou shalt produce tailings, thou shalt produce waste rock. Uh, we have to drill and blast. We have to build, you know, we have to sink shafts, at, at, et cetera. So we have to have a world-class asset that is contiguous. We have to build massive infrastructure. Our projects have to be nine billion over 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. We have to change that paradigm and change the design principles such that it is we will no longer produce waste rock, we will no longer produce tailings, we will no longer need to discharge water, we will recycle as much energy as possible, you know, 50, up to 50% of the energy we use is gone uh, in terms of low-grade waste heat, so we have to change the paradigms and the design principles and do this in similar methodologies that other industries use globally, like Uber and organizations like that. It seems like kind of a lot of what you're saying comes back to the idea, like George also mentioned, that really people are behind driving these changes, right? If people accept a certain way of thinking or change the way of thinking, that translates. It's, it's, not, it's not about the tech necessarily. It's about how people look at it and how they want to implement it. And that's an idea that I want to get back to later, but first I want to go to Nathan and then down to John as well. From your experience, what have you seen that we're doing well that maybe we're not getting enough credit for? Well, first of all, I, I speak at a lot of events and a lot of student events. And honestly, the first question you get from 20-year-olds is, mining, do we still do that? <laughs> and the second one is, they, they really think we're on mules and pickaxes. Yeah. They, they honestly think yeah. that's the industry. Yeah. So I personally think of a big truck as a big mule. So the way I look at it is we're, we're putting a sensor on the truck to see if the tire pressure is right, and we're putting it to see if the mule is happy and fed properly, and we're putting drones to see if it's going away. So we're putting all the sensors, but at the end of the day, it's like if you're driving down the road going in the wrong direction, you're just getting there faster by putting all these sensors on it. And that's how, that's how I, I look at it. You know? So we're not improving. George said we're making it bigger. We're, we certainly are. So you know, the, the general public, and especially the students, when they see, and I hear this all the time, they, they've all seen the Apple says no more mining. And if Apple says it, then mining must be bad. You know, that, that's the, the general consensus. Right. So, and you don't see a lot of demonstrations in downtown Toronto or Lima. It's like, hey, we want more mines. You know, it's like no cyanide, no mining, no, no, no tailings, dams. Yeah. You know, you see those. So that's probably another good indicator. I don't think we get credit for the things we are doing right because yeah. people in general don't know about them. Right. And all they think about the industry is like, well, we do it to ourselves. The, you know, the ball mill was invented in 1850. Flotation cell was patented in 1902. So not a lot of uh, new stuff coming, coming out of these areas. Until we involve them and try to improve something, we don't get credit for the things we do right or the things that we think we're doing right. Is there anything at McEwen that you want to talk about you know, and kind of highlight for us in terms of leading innovation in these kinds of ways? First of all, there's, there's no shortage of good ideas. You know, yeah. that, that's a myth. And a second myth is that 
a lot of these technologies are expensive, which, which is not true. So if you're not familiar at McEwen Mining, we have these innovation lunch and learns. We hold them every second month or so, and we invite people, usually from outside of mining, and we're not trying to promote a product, it's an idea. So, and we tape them, we put them on the CIM website. If you Google McEwen Mining Lunch and Learn, there's about 40 of them. And some of these are, are really, really good ideas. So I think as George said, it's, it's not the shortage of ideas, it's not the cost, it's the implementation. It's getting, everybody wants to be the first to be second, nobody wants to be that first person trying these ideas, and some of them are really good. So yes, we, we, we do, we're a small company, but we've implemented many of the ones that we've showcased on our Lunch and Learns talk about some of them at some of the events I go to. So uh, yeah, there, there, there are lots of great ideas out there. But the problem with mining is, if, if you talk to most companies, they spend 70% of their money on core, about 20% on this adjacent, and about 10% in this outside the box. And mining's more like 95, five, and 0 0.001. So yeah, we might spend money on R&D, and what mining considers R&D is exploration and 43-101s, that's not R&D, but it gets lumped into that for tax purposes. But our real focus is the core. How do I get 1% better tire wear? How do I get the ball mill to go from 5 to 6% efficient? That's what we spend our money on. So yeah, there's money spent there, not nearly as much as should be, but it's all core, adjacent, and virtually zero in the innovation side. And, and so sorry, just on the, for those of you that don't know, the 70-20-10 is basically in the investment criteria that virtually every other industry uses for innovation. It was developed by Eric Schmidt from Google. So it seems there needs to be a fundamental rethinking of the way we're planning our minds and our operations from the ground up before we even get started. Well, R&D and innovation are not the same word, and people in mining tend to use those right. interchangeably. Right. And all the money we do spend tends to be more on the tinkering R&D side not in what I would call innovation. John, I want to go to you uh, next. Sure. Uh, you were asking about um, a 25-year-old's perspective of clean mining. And I recall a, a conversation that, uh, that I had recently in the, in the Ministry of Transportation here, and Gold Corp was considering deploying a, a hydrogen a truck fleet in Northern Ontario. And the director of policy, who would have been about 25 urbanite, uh, sort of turned to me and he's like, well, you're a gold company. Like, what do you care? And I felt like telling him, or I said, actually, I, I did say to him, well, I'm human, so, you know, I do care. So that was the answer. But the, I think the answer really is the defensiveness of the mining industry in terms of its apologeticness and we need, you know, the world needs minerals and we're important to Canada because of X, Y, and Z. That defensiveness is very weak, I think. And our experience is such that action and designing mines and deploying uh, innovation and clean technologies have put us on the front foot of that. And that type of dialogue then has changed to where, in the case of Borden, our all-electric underground mine in Northern Ontario, we've had uh, workers who have left that have actually come back to the mine because the air quality is so much superior um, in an all-electric underground mine versus a dieselized environment. So I think really taking action and, and putting some of these things into practice is probably a great way to turn the page on some of this. Definitely. And I think one of the key ideas that we keep coming back to that, that George mentioned, like I said, is that really people are the motivating factor behind a lot of this. People can be drivers in a lot of different ways. So I'm going to start with Jason, but feel free to jump in anybody. Who do you think we're going to see driving innovation in this field down the line is going to come from consumers or from regulators or from maybe the people in charge of these companies? Where does that come from? 
I think it could be both the customers and regulatory, but there's also um, one of the things that's really encouraging about this industry when you start to look at remote facilities and energy, there's often cost savings now to implementing wind and solar and or energy storage. So it's not necessarily a, a sacrifice that's going to need to be made due to a regulatory oversight or customer demand. But I do think that, uh, that definitely we know in the, in the long run, regulations are going to be uh, a huge factor. Razio, the same question to you. I think the industry has to lead, lead a change. One of the, uh, my responses is, look at mining as the airline industry. Which component of your industry do you want to neglect? Pilot training, maintenance, food aboard? And the answer in mining, in a good mining company, you neglect none. You try to do your best all the time. I'm involved now with Whittle Consulting. We optimize mining operations. And I got involved with them because it puzzled me as a, as a guy in the mining industry. It's so hard to get to build a mine. Finally, you get to build a mine. And when you build a mine, you don't squeeze every bit of value out of it. And partly it's historical reasons. The guy, and there are very good reasons why people don't want to change in mining. The guy's been running a mine for 30 years. MBA uh, guy from the C-suite comes and tells him, and they say, what do you know about mining? I've been doing it for 30 years. Take a hike. And we work in silos within, the, within a company, within a mine, or within a mining operation. And we need to break the silos. And I think it's up to us. When I travel, I, I marvel at the airline industry, how it works, how millions of people in Colombia, Colombia is a very hilly country. There's people, it's like taking Greyhound buses. In the morning, you go in Bogota in the morning to fly to Medellin and you come back. It's amazing. Hundreds of thousands of people get up in the morning, go to the airport, and then come back in the evening home. And they sit on a sofa, they go there, and they come back, and it works. It works every day perfectly. People don't die. And this is a standard that I think we should aim to do in, in industry. And we're getting there. When somebody dies in a mining operation anywhere in the world, the company reports it. One person died, or a subcontractor had an issue, or somebody died. It, didn't, it wasn't like that 30 years ago. We've made a huge progress. And if we can convey this, does mining, do we still mine? We need to go out and, and give examples such as, I wasn't aware we started electrification 30 years ago, for example. Completely unaware, and I'm in the industry. And I know about your mine. Right, but it's, it's gonna, we are in the verge of an enormous revolution in our industry. Forget about 250 years from now. 20 years from now, I'm a lawyer, it'll be illegal to have humans operating in a diesel polluted environment underground. It's as simple as that. You will not allow people, you can wash your hands and face at the end of a shift, you cannot wash your lungs. It is not right to let people go into, but we cannot do it right now because we don't have the technology. But companies are doing it now. And it's going to happen. In Sweden, the, uh, in Boliden, kids have been operating remotely for, what, 20 years now? And uh, a very old mine, right? It's, it's happening. So we need to be proactive. We should do like the, the, in Alberta, the tar sands industry. We need to get a message that those of us who devote our lives to this industry care deeply about the environment. I did a master's in environmental studies in the Amazon basin last century. Okay? I care about the environment. I have children, most of us have children or, or friends. We look at them in the eye and we are proud of what we do. We're not bad guys. We should not react defensively, we should react proactively, we should be very proud of what we do. Without us, there is no progress. One note I made here, cheap iron ore allows for progress. Cheap copper allows for electrification. Innovation in processing lithium or cobalt and whatnot brings progress. And each of those lines requires 
thousands of people working, hundreds of specializations, all working in harmony to allow for this to happen. And, but yet, we, when we present ourselves to the public, is the mule and peacocks, right? We don't show people how sophisticated we are, how many PhDs and scientists we hire, how many universities research we drive, and so on. And we should be proud, and we should go out, and we should not be afraid of speaking up. So it seems to me that what you're saying is that to some extent the onus needs to be on leaders in the industry to take up that mantle and to carry it forward. Uh, I want to go to Carl and then Corey. What are your thoughts on that? I'll just get a, two quick points. Go I for would, it, yeah. I would rank it as uh, the consumer first will drive change, government second, third, someone outside the industry like Netflix or Uber, and fourth, the people in this room. And the, the other one with clean energy, we're a small company, like our life of mines are like six mm -hmm. years, seven years, so people come about wind and solar and they're all excited until they hear it's a six-year mine life and they're not interested. <laughs> but, but that's changing. Like now people will come in with solar panels and take them away and move them in six years or they'll bring in a nuclear reactor the size of a fridge and take it away in six years. So it's not like we have 100-year mine lives like in Sudbury. Ours are, are small scale and people just can't make money on, on a project like that. Right. Now I'm curious about the order you had there. You had the one, two, three. Why, why was that the order that you chose? Driving change? Yeah. Because the people in this room like ball mills and trucks. And <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think, you know, when people, it's like Carl said, you know, people, or Ford will say, no, we don't want metal from, just like the, with blood diamonds, you know, which, which changed yeah. the industry. So you can use blockchain to see where our gold is, to see which gold coin that went into. Did it come from in the Congo and some guy with mercury, or did it come from a mine without cyanide use? That'll drive it. If I think one of your questions, will, will people pay money for green gold? Or the question is, will companies like Ford pay money from non-tailings, non-whatever metal? Yep. So I think it'll come from consumers or that area there. I think get left to our own devices, we're quite happy with ball mills. Carl, do you agree with Nathan? Do you disagree? Yeah, I agree, but I'll put a different spin on it. But first of all, we don't just like trucks. We like big trucks. I got 400 on. How big is yours? You know who likes big trucks? Ten-year-old boys and mining engineers. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Every time you open up something, there's a big, <laughs> big truck. It's a, it's a big truck. How can we make it bigger, right? Yeah, how can we make it? Stuff. Yeah, if you're going for a 10 to 1 waste ratio at 0.5 grams per ton, obviously you need a bigger truck. Yeah. There's no other way to do it. And, and, that, and that comes back to what I said before, the paradigm shift. You have to basically ask yourself, do you need the big truck at all? Do you need trucks? But to answer your question about the, the regular, uh, who's going to drive this, realistically, similar to Nathan, but if the companies don't do it, then it will be forced on us, period, end of story. And again, just with Apple coming up with this, no more mining has actually triggered a lot of people taking a look outside the, the business and going, hey, those are my stakeholders now. We have to look at our stakeholders. So if we don't do it, it will be, we'll be forced. And those companies that do not do it will end up being out of business, period. And Corey? John mentioned earlier the word partnership, and I think that there's lots of players who can and play a role in this pursuit of change. And I think that um, supply community has a role to play, OEMs, um, the research and innovation community, and government communities, the, uh, the industry itself. I do agree that the, uh, the pressure to change is going to come from society. I think if you take the timeline that George put up where he talked about you know, 1750, 1500, and, and 2005 or whatever it was, you can shorten that. What's acceptable 20 years ago is not acceptable today, and what's acceptable today probably won't be acceptable in five years. So we have to be prepared to change. 
And, and I think that we have to be in that continuous change mindset. Change is, is not something that you've ever fully accomplished. There's no finish line. We have to continue to pursue it. I can remember when, uh, when I met my wife, I was a newspaper reporter, and her father was a retired 30-year worker at the uh, smelter in Sudbury. And to him, I was just a paper boy, uh, you know. It meant nothing. I never joined the family until I joined the mining industry. And then in the, in the early stages of our, uh, our emission reduction effort, what we called the SOAP project, the SO2 abatement project, you should have heard this guy. He was saying, well, they're a bunch of babies. He says, when I worked there, the air was blue and men were men. And, you know, that was, that was the attitude. That attitude doesn't exist anymore. It's, uh, it's changed, and, and we have to change along with it. Times are definitely changing. Now, I want to look towards the future of clean mining, and I know, John, you guys have done a lot of great work over there with Gold Corp in that regard. So I'll start with you. What does the future of clean mining look like? I was going to mention something on your previous question about kind of where the change is yeah. going to come from. So, yeah, I think that the leadership and vision of the current suite of major companies, I think a lot of that change can come from those leaders and that vision. And what I would say is, you know, in terms of Gold Corp's vision, we have our towards uh, zero water initiative where we believe water is a precious resource and that putting price on water and understanding ways in which we can reduce our water. So our moonshot objective is to reduce our water, fresh water consumption by 80%. And I think that that then further gets to the second sort of big influencers on this area, which will be investors. And the market, of course, reacts to short-term type investments and other types of um, activities within. So as soon as the if, the, if the market starts to put value on clean mining and innovation and technology and companies who do adopt and are, and are essentially taking responsibility in that way, then I think that that will have a big and ultimate massive impact on the industry as we all very much react to market signals. So. Now we are running out of time, but I want to go to Jason and then Nathan real quick. Same question to you guys. What does the future of clean mining look like? Well, I, I, from the energy perspective, yeah. it's great. We can already see that renewables are making their way into uh, diesel cost reductions, and you're seeing people playing around with um, microgrids that use lithium batteries because lithium's cheap, and um, uh, there's a lot of it around today. The, uh, in the future, though, you're never going to remove the emissions on your electricity generation until you get something that can hold many hours or days or weeks worth of uh, electricity. So technologies uh, like our zinc reactor and some of the other technology companies you're going to see this afternoon may be able to help with how do you move to 100% renewable electricity generation uh, off-grid. So I have a whole list. I'll pick one. In situ recovery. No ball mills. No trucks, no tails. If in my lifetime I could ban one of those three, I'll be happy. If I ban all three, that's even better. So in situ recovery. You really hate ball mills. Yeah. I hate all of those. And on that note, I think that'll do it for our clean mining panel. Unfortunately, we're out of time. A big round of applause, please, for our lovely panelists. Thank you so much, guys. That does it for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And thank you to our sponsor, the Yukon Mining Alliance. 
Visit them at their website at yukonminingalliance.ca for the latest news on their members. And you can follow their Twitter feed at at InvestYukon. And you, the listener, you can help out the podcast by liking it, sharing it, and subscribing to it. And that's it. Bye-bye. 